Our scripture reading for the new, from the New Testament is from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, and we read the verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men for all sins, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there was no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounds to many, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sent. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. And therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting into condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in that, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So far our scripture reading, this afternoon in the sermon we will follow the teaching of the Belgian Confession and the, the articles 17 and 18, we read those articles first. So article 17, the recovery of fallen man, and then article 18, the incarnation. We believe that our good God, by his marvelous wisdom and goodness, seeing that man had plunged himself in his manner into both physical and spiritual death and made himself completely miserable, set out to find him, though man, trembling all over, was fleeing from him. And he comforted him, promising to give him his son, born of a woman, to crush the head of the serpent and to make him blessed. Article 18 And so then we confess that God fulfilled the promise which he had made to the early fathers by the mouth of his holy prophets when he sent his only and eternal son into the world at the time set by him. The son took the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man, truly assuming a real human nature with all its weaknesses except for sin, being conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit without male participation. And he not only assumed human nature as far as the body is concerned, but also a real human soul in order that he might be a real human being. 
For since his soul had been lost as well as the body, he had to assume both, to save them both together. And therefore, we confess against the heresy of the Anabaptists, who deny that Christ assumed flesh from his mother, that he, that he shared the very flesh and blood of the children, that he is fruit of the loins of David according to the flesh, fruit of the seed of David according to the flesh. Fruit of the womb of the Virgin Mary, born of a woman, the seed of David, a shoot from the root of Jesse, the offspring of Judah, having descended from the Jews according to the flesh, from the seed of Abraham. For he assumed Abraham's seed, and was made like his brothers, except for sin. In this way, he is truly our Emmanuel, that is, God with us. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we this afternoon will look at those Two articles, the Belgian Confession, I truly hope that on the end of the sermon I didn't tell you anything new, but I reminded you of those very important and basic things of the Christian faith that one must never forget. So in Article 16, the article previous to ours of this afternoon, we confess with the Church of the Reformation the great mercy of God that he did not abandon humanity after they, by the disobedient, had plunged themselves into perdition. And perdition, that means eternal damnation or complete ruin. God, after the disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, showed him, that article tells us, to be as he is, merciful and just, merciful in the election of those he would save, and just, believing others in the fall and perdition, they had plunged themselves, and they then continue in a life of willful rebellion against God. They will not recognize God, and they have no use at all for the gospel of salvation. Just imagine how Terribly rebellious and repulsive humanity had become in God's sight. And then we marvel about the mercy and the love that moved God to choose from that sinful human race, people whom he would save. God's eternal plan of election, of the election of his people, that's actually the centerpiece of his great work of providence in which God from eternity has determined whatsoever will come to pass. And whatsoever will come to pass serves to accomplish that central peace, that plan of God's election and the salvation of his chosen people. Now this afternoon, with the article 17 and 18, we'll see how God in time works out his eternal plan, the eternal plan of the election and the salvation of his people. And we will look at it under the theme that our gracious God sets out to rescue fallen man. And we look at two points, and that is that God is seeking fallen man and courting, comforting them with a promise, and then also that God is doing this by sending his son to save them. Seeking fallen man and then comforting with a promise. We read in our article that God set out to seek man when he saw that man had thus, by their disobedience to him, plunged himself into spiritual and physical death and made himself completely miserable. Completely miserable. 
Now, being miserable, that is being in a terrible and a deadly situation, without that she can do anything about it as making it worse. That is being completely miserable. And that was the situation of not only of Adam and Eve, but in Adam and Eve, of in Adam, of all of us. And then the first question that needs to be answered is, what motivated God to do such a thing, to set out to seek man? And the answer to this question is also in our article. It says that our gracious God did this by his marvelous wisdom and goodness. So let's have that straight first. It was not man's misery that motivated God, but his own graciousness, his own wisdom, and his own goodness. You see, looking at fallen man, at fallen humanity, this is what God saw. There is no one righteous. No, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. They all have turned aside. They have together become unprofitable or worthless. There is none who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongue they have practiced deceit. The poison of apes is under their lips and their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. See that? It's a long list. But the long list shows that there really was nothing left in humanity that in any way could possibly be attractive to God. So what awesome is it then that God is gracious and wise and good and that he let those things motivate him to continue to look at those miserable creatures. Man, it's truly amazing when you really think about God's mercy and grace. It is truly amazing. Now when we read that God, in our article, that God set out to seek men who trembling fled from him, then we automatically see in our minds what we read in Genesis 3. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves coverings, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid himself in the presence from the presence of the Lord God in the trees of the garden. And then the Lord called Adam, and he said to him, Where are you? So God set out to seek man. Now the question, did God set out to seek man because God did not know where Adam and Eve were? Of course not. God knew exactly where they were, and also exactly what they were doing. But the beauty is that God set out to seek those who were not seeking for him at all. He went out to seek those who filled with fear an emotion they had never felt before, were hiding, and were trembling, and fleeing away. Because of the disobedience, the unity between God and, and them, the, his created image, was broken. Adam and in him, all of us, all of humanity, had separated himself from God, and there was nothing left than to flee from him. And God, for whom the past, the present, and the future is, as it were, one picture, saw not only Adam and Eve, 
But in Adam, he saw all of humanity, you and me too. And he saw them all, us included, fleeing from him. There they go, lost, wandering over the earth, pursued by the wrath of the judge just. There they go, loaded with guilt and a burning conscience and prey for misery and target for grief and object for pain and death in the power of Satan, the most vicious, deadly, cruel enemy men will ever have. There they go, hiding between the trees in the garden, covering themselves for the wrath of God with fig leaves. There they go, driven out by armed angels and all of creation first subject to them, now opposes them. And was it only that they could endure all this together, but the unity between them was broken too. Instead of being one flesh and one spirit, there is the division, the blaming of each other. Instead of complimenting one another, there is now the strife of who is most to blame and who is most innocent, and from that on who is most important. All unity and harmony are broken. This conflict between heart and mind, between soul and body, between conscience and passions. There will be discord and hatred and murder within families. Division between the man and the wife, between parents and children. There will be war between nations and people would purposely inflict on each other sufferings born in hell itself. And with all this, man hears God approaching, calling for them to Come before him, before God who is holy and righteous and just. God whose friendly shine has for them become an inapproachable light. So nothing is left for them than to tremble in fear and to flee from him. What a sad picture of brokenness. Brothers and sisters, an awful picture of evil. A terrifying picture also of a cursed world. One could hear so to speak, the sneering cackle of Satan reverberate over all that God once called good. Man had made himself completely miserable. But God, but God is gracious and wise and good. And when he saw that man had thus plunged himself into physical and spiritual death, he made and made himself completely miserable, then he by moved by that amazing grace and that marvelous wisdom and infinite goodness set out to seek man. And when God found him, he poured out not his eternal wrath, but his love upon them and comforted them by promising them his son. Our article says, born of a woman, to bruise the head of the serpent and to make man blessed. God did not let go of man. In his marvelous Wisdom, he had designed a plan in which his love and his mercy, as well as his perfect justice, would be satisfied. Man had broken God's covenant, and God did not let go of him. And so we rightly may say, praise the Lord, for he is good, and his mercies endure forever. You see, God had made a covenant with man. And he had said that upon their disobedience, Death would follow, implying that if man would keep God's command, they would continue to have life. And that covenant is historically by all early reformers called the covenant of works. But because later theologians 
objected to the idea that Adam would have earned eternal life instead of having received it by the word grace, and therefore they had trouble with that term, the covenant of works. And then they called it instead the covenant of God's favor. Others called it the covenant of paradise. And others again, the covenant of creation. And of course you can say something good about each of these names. But it's also confusing. And we should not be confused at all about those things. Because they are the basic things of our Christian faith. And so I would advise you to just hang on to that term the title, The Covenant of Works. Not because Adam would have earned eternal life by being obedient. He would have, not because he had earned eternal life by his works, but because Adam would receive what God gave him out of pure grace in the way of Adam's work of disobedience, of obedience. In the same way that the believer receives assurance of their salvation, not because of their good works, but in the way of their good works. That's what we talked about this morning. If you want to know for sure that you're saved, that you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, don't tell others about him. That's one of those works that convinces you to belong to him. There is no doubt in your heart. That is how Adam would have continued to live, who would have received eternal life in the way of obeying, in the way of doing what God has told him to do. And there's no other reason to hold on to the title of covenant of works, also because Christ, by his mighty work of his obedience unto death, by his awesome work of atonement for sinners, fulfilled this covenant of works for all those who believe in him. And he truly earned salvation and eternal life. And he earned it for his people by his works. And you see that covenant of works is still in effect of today. Today, It is only in the Lord Jesus Christ that the believer stands before God in the covenant of grace. That covenant which God initiated with our first parents, Adam and Eve, when he, after he set out to seek them and found them and comforted, and comforted them by promising his son. And the man broke that covenant of works they broke a covenant that said, the day that you eat of the tree, you will most surely die. And cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And God did not do away with the demands of that covenant. God also did not do away with the threat of that covenant. But God placed a mediator, his son, between that threat and all those who came to believe in his son. But those, and let it be a warning, those who do not believe in him continue to be accountable to him, to God, for every good work they did not do. For all the evil work that he continued to do. And his terrible wrath is looming over them continually. The only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ, is by God appointed mediator in between him and God stood that demand of a broken covenant of works and its curse, and he satisfied those demands on the cross. And now between God and the believing sinner is our Lord Jesus Christ, and in him is for every believer the covenant of works fulfilled, finished, he said so himself, and the covenant of grace forever 
established. Now those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ do not need fear any longer. They may draw near to God as, their, as his children for Christ's sake. Instead of trembling, fleeing from him, they may trustingly flee towards him. And all this is because God, in his amazing grace and his marvelous wisdom and infinite goodness, set out to seek mankind in order to comfort them with his glorious gospel. In his marvelous wisdom, he decided to let nothing depend upon man. That was the case with the first Adam. But he let it all depend upon his goodness and upon the second Adam, who is truly man, but also truly God, our Lord Jesus Christ, for whom nothing is impossible. So, so far then, God's promise to mankind. Let's now see in a second point how God fulfilled that promise. Article 18 begins with the words, We confess, therefore, that God has fulfilled the promise he made to the fathers by the mouth of the holy prophets. Let's stop there for a moment. Now, the mouth of the holy prophets was, of course, directed by the Spirit of Christ. Christ, through his Spirit, was speaking already in the Old Testament. That's why we cannot just only read the New Testament. Because Christ is speaking also in the Old Testament. That is what the Apostle Peter taught us in 1 Peter 1, verse 10 and 11. I will read it to you. 1 Peter 1, verse 10 and 11. That Peter writes, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, search intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing. Then he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And seeing in this light, the word, the Son of God, is the prophet of the Old Testament. He, through his spirit, spoke of himself throughout all of it. He spoke of himself in the mother promise in Genesis 3.15. And he called himself her seed. And he spoke to Lamech, the father of Noah. And he said about himself that he will comfort us in the labor and the painful toil of our hands caused by the ground that the Lord has cursed. He spoke through Noah, who said, Blessed be the God of Shem, and in that they received the holy lineage, its promise. To Abram, he promised that in him all the nations would be blessed. He pronounced Isaac as the son of the promise. He always loved Jacob. And through Jacob he pointed to, to Judas, the one from whom the scepter would never depart. And all throughout the Psalms, by the mouth of David, he himself sung about the suffering and the resurrection as the promised Messiah. Through Isaiah he spoke of the virgin who would become pregnant and gave birth to a son whose name would be Emmanuel. Through Isaiah he spoke of his own suffering on behalf of his people. And through Micah he revealed that he would be born in Bethlehem. And through Daniel he spoke of the mighty world-fulfilling power of the kingdom that he would establish. And so we can go on and on. And through all these people, Christ was speaking of himself by his spirit. Read the Old Testament. It's most wonderful what he's telling us there. And then in the fullness of time, meaning the time which God has appointed, which God has said, God fulfilled what he once promised by sending his only begotten and eternal son, says article 18, for God so loved the world. So great was his compassion on fellow man, and so much he loved you, 
brothers and sisters. So much he desired to have you as his child. So much did he desire to share his glory with you. So God the Father sent his son. But at the same time, God the Son came voluntarily. Just as we read it in Psalm 40, where we have Christ speaking. Then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O my God, and your law is in my heart. He was ready and he was willing to come at any time. But he did not come before his father sent him, just as he will not come for a second time before his father sent him. And when he came, he took the form of a servant. He humbled himself and was born in the likeness of man. He truly assumed, that means he truly took upon himself a true human nature with all its infirmities without sin. And with these words, our article summarizes then the incarnation the becoming truly man of the Son of God. And this is the absolute greatest miracle that you can find in the Bible and that ever happened. The eternal Son of God became man in order to save man. For many believers, Christ's suffering and death seem to be the high point in Christ's redemptive work. And there is nothing wrong with that. But it would be good if we would all rediscover the absolute wonder of the eternal Son of God coming into our flesh, becoming truly man. And you must think about this miracle. The Son of God, of which we know and confess that He is eternal, who is incomprehensible, who is invisible, who is immutable, who is infinite, who is almighty, all of that. The heavens of heavens cannot contain Him. But he was coming into the human flesh with all its infirmities. Not just in human flesh. Human flesh in all its infirmities, just like you and me. John Calvin in his institutes says the following about this. He was amazed about it too. He said, here is something marvelous. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in a virgin's womb to go about the earth to hang upon a cross. Yet he continually filled the world, even as he has done from the beginning. Marvelous. You can get your mind around it, but what infinite love. Celebrating Christmas is truly a wonderful and a worthy thing to do, as long as you celebrate and adore that greatest wonders of all wonders. The eternal Son of God coming into our flesh, born of a virgin, in order to be our mediator, our savior, the one who will lead us again to holiness and glory. Jesus Christ is truly God, but also truly man. So how how human was Christ? And he read in an article, in all things, like us, except for sin, we always said that with it, when we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, he was in all things like us, except for sin, so he was not quite like us. No, he was exactly like us, except for sin. But you need to remember that it is not sin that makes us human. No, it is sin that makes us miserable humans. As a matter of fact, sin makes one more and more inhuman. It's fully human. So, how could that be? How could Christ be born without sin? 
where we are taught in Article 14 of our Belgian Confession that through Adam's disobedience, sin had become natural to all of his, of his offspring. And we read in Romans 5 verse 12, we read that through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, so all men sinned. But of the Lord Jesus, we know, he had no sin. And that was because he had no human father. Mary became pregnant because the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. Mary conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit without the means of a man, and that broke the terrible chain of sin. So the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us too in question and answer 35. It says that Mary conceived by the working of the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what we read on about it in Matthew 1 verse 18. That we read, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And in Luke 1 verse 35, the angel says to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So although sinless, Christ is truly human. So how really human was his body? Well, Jesus grew from an embryo into a baby, into a toddler, into a young man, and into a full-grown man, just as every man. His mom needed to teach him how to speak, how to eat. Truly man. In the Bible we know that Jesus became hungry. Read that in Matthew 4 verse 2. Just like we become hungry at times. He became thirsty. John 19. Just like us. Just as we do, he too became tired. You read it in John 4 verse 6. And he slept. Mark 4. He experienced sorrow. And pain. And he died. How much more human can you be? Now our article says that Christ not only assumed a human body, but also a human soul, in order that he might be a real man. For since the soul was lost as well as the body, it was necessary that he assumed both in order to save both. So just remember how God made man from the dust of the ground. He formed that human body, and then he breathed into his nostrils the bread of life, which is the soul. And so... Adam became a living human being, body and soul. Both belonged to the human nature and both needed to be redeemed. And if Christ had a human soul, we also know from Scripture, from Himself. We hear Him say in Matthew 26, verse 38, Now my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And in John 12, verse 27, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose they came into this hour. Evidence of the humanity of Jesus' soul, we also find as you read about his emotions. From Mark 3 verse 5 we learn that Jesus became angry. And in Mark 8 verse 12 that he became irritated, just like we can. He showed distress and sorrow. And all of this, that's so clear evidence that Jesus is truly man, body and soul, in all things except for sin, he truly assumed a true human nature in order to save that human nature. And all this was so necessary. In the Heidelberg Catechism, question 16, they ask, why must he, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, be true and righteous man? And then the answer, he must be true man, because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. And then he goes, goes on and says, he must be a righteous man, because one who is himself a sinner cannot pay for the sin of others. See how perfect the Savior God provided, God promised that in paradise. The man had complete, made himself completely miserable. God provided a perfect Savior, just fit for us. So necessary. And he became truly man. And here is the question, was it necessary for him, who always was the very radiance of God's glory, was it necessary for him, who was worshipped by angels? Was it necessary for him, of whom God the Father testified that in him he was well pleased? Was it necessary for him, who from eternity to eternity, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, existed in a harmony only known to live to him, who rejoiced in each other, but not in need of anything, because our triune God is the utter fullness and the absolute satisfaction and the infinite self-sufficient one. Was it necessary for him all this? No, it was necessary for us sinners, who by our very nature are inclined to hate him. For us, it was necessary who mistreated the many servants the father had sent and finally killed his son. For us, who despised him. For us, who hid our faces for him. For us, who considered him stricken by God. For us, who by our sins nailed him to the cross. And because it was necessary for us, and because God is gracious and just and wise and God and good, he gave his son. And sent him. And the son came. And became in all things like us. Except for sin. So that he could pay for our sin. So that we may confess. That we are the children of God. What a journey. The most miserable. The most blessed. And yes those things are too wonderful for us to grasp with our mind. But they are true. Yes it is true. That God's ways are higher than ours. And let's praise him for it. Yes, it is true that God's plan is infinitely wise, and let us adore him for it. It's so true that our Lord's love is beyond our understanding. Let's let love him for it. No, we cannot comprehend or understand everything about our God. But we may believe in him, and we may trust him, and we may love him more. Yes, let's always love him more. Amen.